This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where, if you get on it now, you can enjoy their lobster and clam bake, which is something you order and take out. The final dates of the year are September 12th and 26th. And if you go to Zupan's.com, you can see how those differ. They usually have uh, a different uh, wine pairing or champagne pairing with that. So you enjoy that at home. It features lobster tails, clams, wild shrimp, and kielbasa. And I can tell you, we had one of the, uh, I think the first one of the season, and it was seriously a fantastic meal. And we were able to stretch that out to actually four portions, two different times we were able to enjoy what was there. I think we put some lobster over pasta. Oh, nice. For the second second night. So, And it's always a treat out here to get lobster. I love um, crab, but I prefer lobster. And when I can get my my hands on or my fork on some, uh, I'm in in happy land. Hey, also three things that you don't want to miss in uh, your local Zupan store, the Tasty Trio. Talking fresh figs. It's a late summer favorite that pairs perfectly with cheese, honey. Top it on pizza, throw it in your salad. We love to do figs when you you do like a charcuterie board, which is a great thing for you to grab at your local Zupans and just add some figs into there. And it's money. You'll you, you'll it's, be you'll be loving it. It really is special. It's not something I really discovered till I moved out west. They also have fresh dips available in their deli grab and go. They're created locally. Speaking of figs, by three little figs and feature spinach, three cheese artichoke, and French onion made with three little figs, French onion confit. Very nice. Also, don't miss out on their signature burger. It's the perfect way to close out the summer, created with a blend of ground sirloin, short rib, and brisket. Comes in at a half pound. The signature burger is ground only once instead of twice, and that gives the burger a coarser consistency and an eating experience that is more like a steak than a burger. And Chris, you've had this and you love it. I've had them quite a few times. So when you go into Zupan's and you're at you're at the meat counter, you're looking at beautiful ground beef or or their signature burger making a decisions. And I usually go with both. Yeah. So uh, get just have one of the try one of the signature burgers or two. Um, and uh, and the ground beef is great, too. But it's it would be a shame if you were standing there making a decision and pass up that burger because it is fantastic. It cooks up really nicely, medium rare, um, uh, something to really enjoy. And definitely something to think about as we head uh, towards the end of the summer. Labor Day is just right around the corner. Get get some of those for the uh, Labor Day barbecue. There you go. And you can pick up that burger at any one of three locations. You start, Court. Well, you got uh, West Burnside. And McAdam. Mm -hmm. Lake Oswego. And, of course, where? Zupans.com. All right, it's time once again, Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. And Court Johnson on the other end of the Zoom meeting platform, I suppose we would call it. Sure. Uh, Yeah, and so we're still doing this, and I have to tell you, I'm looking forward to getting back in the studio, but we made one step closer towards that today at least in terms of format and um what we're doing is 
we have a new episode, which we haven't had for uh, a little while now. And we have a fresh new episode with Greg Higgins of Everyone Knows Higgins. Mm -hmm. And of course, now Piggins. So um, we, I was able to go over uh, to Higgins and see Piggins and actually um, order lunch from Piggins. I had an incredible heirloom and burrata salad. Um, which was delicious, but which I uh, proceeded to tilt as I put it in the back of my car and watch some of those things go all over other things. Ah. So I put it back together, and even having done that, it was delicious. But at any rate, uh, Piggins was, if you listen to the last episode that we um, recorded with Greg Higgins in September of 2016, which was almost four years ago. Yeah. Uh, Greg indicates, uh, and so it's easy to do that, by the way, for those of you who ever want to find any of the 200, what, 40, 50 plus episodes that we have now? Yeah. Just, just Google right at the fork and the, and the guest's name, and you should be able to find it. But at any rate, he mentions Piggin, something that he had, uh, the concept that he had in mind back in 2010, and then, you know, the economy hit then, and uh, so he put that on the back burner, and now, as a means to figure out how to make the best of this current situation, Piggins is located outside of the Oregon Historical Society, right on the park blocks, um, as a food cart and a shed. And I have to say, beautiful table dining, looking over the park blocks. Like you, you can't have that anywhere else. I don't, I don't know of any other restaurant that looks over those park blocks. Right. I don't. I don't think there is any. No. So it's around the corner from Higgins. And so now they've opened up Piggins, which is during the day some delicious sandwiches, and you can get charcuterie there. And um, and then at in the evening it reverts to a more of a close to Higgins menu. Obviously, they can't do everything out there, but a lot of the prep and the staff. You'll listen in this interview. Um, he's able. He has been able to hire back most of his staff, and for this, what's what is the phase two? of Higgins reopening. Phase three would be opening the indoor part of the restaurant right. for traditional dining. That has not happened yet. But at any rate, Greg Higgins, for those who don't know, Greg Higgins is one of the, um, oh, he goes pretty far back in the Portland food scene and was one of the uh, people to establish Portland's place in the food world. And realize what a great bounty of food we had here and how to work with it. So he was not a trained chef, but he learned himself in the garden and through traveling and working with it. And I think he's certainly one of the best chefs we'll ever have in Portland. Uh, Higgins, uh, Greg was chosen as best chef Northwest, uh, the Beard Award in 2002. And uh, in 2005, Higgins was selected by Nation's Restaurant News in the Fine Dining Hall of Fame. And, you know, it's been there for quite a few years, right on the corner of, uh, what is it, Broadway and Jefferson? Yep. Uh, just a block from where we normally record the podcast. And, um, and he just did some renovations over the... Um, over the winter. So they're all jacked up with no place to go with a beautiful restaurant. So um, 
when it does open again, it's going to be for those who are always looking for something new and trendy. Well, Higgins is going to be kind of new and trendy right now. So, uh, but Piggins is definitely new and awesome. And I have to say, there's no better view. And in the, you can make reservations at Piggins and go out and eat with a view of the park block, some of the best food you're going to get in Portland. So let's let Greg talk about that, um, about Piggins and opening it and what the thinking was and what the thinking will be going forward. And Greg is a positive gentleman. So he is trying to look at uh, the, in the face of something no one has ever um, ha had to handle before. He's looking at the positives on this. And, um, and I think you can see and taste uh, what he's doing to keep things moving and keep people employed as well. Yeah, and, and as you uh, listen to Greg talk today with you, Chris, we should also point out that he also wrote an email or he wrote uh, kind of a note uh, talking about the, this positive outlook that we should draw people's attention to. Uh, we put a link to it on our website, right at the fork.com on the, uh, on this episode, you can go there and click over and read more of his thoughts on this stuff. So I want to make sure that we point that out. That was actually his, his note to his patrons and supporters uh, when this thing hit um, after he had a couple of weeks to absorb it. So, um, and he talks a little bit about some positive things that everybody can do now in the face of, uh, in the face of this and um, where we might be going. So, um, but I have to say, uh, I think he's going to come out stronger than ever before with outdoor dining and indoor dining and uh, some new possibilities. So it was a real pleasure to be restart our current I, I can't call them live interviews because it's not quite live. We recorded this on September 2nd on Wednesday. So this will hit the next day Yep. Um, within 24 hours. So it's good to be back in the current ball game and we'll continue with some um, episodes going forward. So thank you all for bearing with us over the last few months. We've been running some episodes in our archives. And uh, speaking of which, I strongly suggest as a companion piece to this interview with Greg Higgins in 2020, go back and find our interview with him in 2016. Just Google right at the fork. I believe it was number 94. Court, you can correct me later through the magic of editing. I will do exactly that. If I'm wrong, if I'm right, then I'm right. That's a good, then my memory is a little better than I thought. So <laughs> it was actually 93. <laughs> well, that's close. Yep. So, uh, so Greg Higgins, episode 93, 2016. I suggest you listen to that in addition to this. Right at the Fork is supported by Zupan's Markets. Whether you're an expert chef or a connoisseur of great cuisine, Zupan's Markets has been the number one destination for the food and wine lovers of Portland and beyond for over 40 years. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego, or Zupan's.com. Ringside Steakhouse. It's time again to slice into the best steaks and service available in Portland. Seating is now available by reservation only for indoor and outdoor dining at ringsidesteakhouse.com. 
and check out the newly opened New England-style fish and ship spot with a Northwest personality. Rock Paper Fish, a partnership between the Peterson family and Portland icon Micah Camden in the old Boxer Ramen space on East Burnside for takeout only. And by Portland Food Adventures, Cabin Fever, book a fantastic culinary vacation in 2021 with podcast host Chris Angeles. Experience the best of Basque Country with Javier Canteras of Erdoneta or Western Sicily with Taste of Italy's Austri Enzyme. Wet your appetite and get more information at portlandfoodadventures.com or contact Red at the Four Coast Chris Angeles for more details. Well, good. So, um, interestingly enough, uh, I listened to our last podcast, which was in September of 2016, okay. almost exactly four years ago. And you had mentioned Piggins, mm-hmm. and then you know you had you had ideas for it back when the economy went sour and decided not to do it. I guess everything was pretty strong in 2016, mm-hmm. and uh, then the idea came back to uh, to roast mm-hmm. or roost um, this year. Right. So talk a little bit about how Piggins how it uh, came about. Came about. Mm-hmm. It sounds as though it actually was coming about. Before the pandemic hit, it sort of had um, just the concept of maybe doing a, a kind of a cash spot, you know, something that was just easy, uh, relatively easy, as easy as the food business can be. Um, but when the pandemic hit and we all went through our period of like doom and gloom for a bit, um, in the evenings, my wife and I would sit out front in our little Japanese garden, have a glass of wine, and talk about ideas, what we're going to do, what, how we're going to get our way out of this mess. And, uh, she walks with a guy down on the athletic field near her house for exercise, who's an attorney, a retired attorney, but a CEO. And he had some ideas. And his first question to her was, you know, do you have outdoor dining? And she said, no, you know, it doesn't really work at Higgins because of Broadway and Jefferson being so busy and whatnot. And, uh, but then while we we're having a glass of wine, she said, what about that plaza out there by the History Center, which is our landlord? And that's how the idea was born. Um, so we started thinking about it and I was thought, oh man, a temporary kitchen would be a really hard thing to do out there because the health department would be all over it and it'd just be a nightmare setting it up, tearing it down, doing mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Especially with a lot of unknowns yeah. going on. Yeah. You didn't not know, like, are you going to be able to open up? When? What, yeah. What it was going to be, what it would look like. So uh, I, we kind of kept thinking that over and the next morning I was getting out of the shower and I said, what am I talking about? It would be like a food cart, a food trailer. You know, and, and that would be a portable kitchen and that's doable. So I gave it some thought and started putting together an idea, but I hadn't, you know, thrown this up to, uh, Kerry Timchuk is the CEO and director of the Oregon Historical Society. He's in charge and he's connected to everybody. He's a big mover shaker. So I called Kerry up a few days later after I flushed the idea out and said, Hey, Kerry, I got this idea. I want to see what you thought of it. And I explained it and I said, I'll make a big proposal for you. And I put them together, you know, written proposal, all the details, all the bells and whistles on it. And he's like, you can turn that over to your committee. And he said, committee? What committee? I'm the committee. And I don't even bother with the proposal. I say yes. And so that's, you know, just, I was like shocked. And I was like, whoa, I thought this was going to be like a fight. (laughs) Uh, So anyhow, he was 100% behind it from the the get-go and whatever we needed to do to do it. And so that's how the thing started. And then I started, originally the concept was to try and buy a used uh, trailer, 
And that's like buying a used boat. Probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, probably cost you more than a new one would have when you, by the time you got all done. So I started researching that and then trying to find a, a builder that could you know get something done in the time frame we were looking for. Uh, that was, I think this whole process started back in April, you know, so after two, three weeks of kind of mulling this over, we started to go into high gear with it. So that's basically the, the, the concept. And with Carrie's support, we were able to start fast tracking it. The slow tracking it happened when we got to the city, but that's a different story. So, Well, at least you didn't have two stages of slow tracking. You yeah. thought you were in for a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think probably what it sounds to me what made that happen was the immediate yes, because if you had to go through a month or two of committee decisions. <laughs> sure. Then, uh, yeah, may it have might, might have been there. November. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You wouldn't have had a, you wouldn't have had a pandemic plan, put it that way. Yeah, it would have exactly. Been, would have been a different one. So, um, that is part of your phase two and that's going well. You're taking reservations, reservations, table service, quasi Higgins menu. Yeah. There. Yeah. As close as we can get, you know, that's, uh, we're still using all the amazing growers that we use, all the, the ranchers, fishermen. I mean, everything is the same tip top quality product that we would use at Higgins. Uh, we're serving on compostable, what I found to be the most, you know, attractive, not just straight up chinette or something like that or clamshells. We got some pretty good looking sugarcane compostable material, both nice forks, the whole works is all ready to go and be composted after use. Um, so that eliminates the, uh, we still have glassware because you can't have a cocktail out of a paper cup or mm -hmm. something like that. So, uh, we, we, we schlepped the glassware and the, uh, the, the nicer silverware out from the restaurant and that to enhance the experience. But, uh, generally speaking, it's as close as you can get to be on a plaza and, or, you know, beautiful cafe out in the middle of a town in France or Italy or whatever. So setting is amazing and the weather has been amazing. So we're pretty soaked on it. So. so you're not restricted to just the cart then because you have access right around the block right. to not only, you know, the kitchen itself, but people. You, can't, sure. you can only put a couple of people in the food cart safely. Right. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the kitchen, the, the, it's a satellite, a summer kitchen, we call it. And uh, from there, everything's cooked to order. But everything, the, the bulk of the production, we don't do any prep in the cart. It's all just cooked to order. So the materials all come out. The mise en place all comes out ready to roll. So portion set up, boys season it, do the, the you know saute work, the grill work and all that. Uh, you know, just like a restaurant would. So do you hope to come out of this? Let's hope we come out of this at some point in the near future sure. with uh, even stronger than before because well, you have now two profit centers. And what, well, how does that work in the winter? Well, there's our plan going into the fall here, I'm just in the process of uh, doing a total uh, thorough sort of study of the restaurant for interior dining when we start that. So we've got a guy fabricating some special tabletops. We're getting... Um, our upholstery covered with a clear, cleanable, sanitizable vinyl material. So it'll look nice, but it'll be cleanable. Um, and basically examining all those things of table setup capacities. Uh, we're going from 140 seats down to about 50. So maybe 55. It depends on some interpretation of uh, the distancing and stuff like that. And the bar is problematic because they won't let you sit at, see people at bars now. And we, of course, have a large bar. So we're trying to figure out if there's a way to utilize some of that within the Thing. If I recall, that was your, one of your initial attractions to that space. Yeah, there's, was the there's, bar. yeah I, I like slipping into one of those booths just like an old slipper and, you know, getting myself a, a beer and a bump and and uh, still like to do that, but haven't haven't had a chance for lately. So uh, so anyhow, they, and then we're looking at air filtration systems so to get the proper air exchange and all that stuff so that we can maximize the safety and the comfort level of the folks when they come indoors. 
uh, as well as the staff, of course. So. Is there some uh, government assistance with all those things you're going to have to do now that you didn't weren't necessarily part of the picture before? You know, uh, we have fought tooth and nail uh, and lobbying leading up through this whole process. Uh, I've been in contact constantly with Ron White and, and Earl Blumenauer and had discussions and, and lobbied uh, along with the other IRC people, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, for uh, a phase two uh, proposal that, that's in the bill that's dead on the floor of the Senate right now. So nobody knows. Um, I'm going at it with the idea that we probably aren't going to see any assistance, but it, it would be a godsend if we did get uh, some kind of lifeline other than you know the, the PPP loan program, which was fraught with problems from the get-go. Uh, it got improved with some rewriting, but it's still not an ideal situation. So, uh, But we're approaching it with the idea that we can expect to be trying to make it a go of it on less than 50% of normal revenue and, and figure out a way to make that work. And that's no small thing. I mean, for a restaurant that works on 7 to 10% net, that's a very tough challenge. So. Have you? Do you have a spreadsheet yet where it works, or are you still in? We're, right now, with what we're doing with Piggins, we're just kind of holding our head at water level, and I know what I have to do through the winter to make uh, Higgins work, and we're going to planning on keeping Piggins open for uh, takeout, essentially, on a more limited hour basis. We're open right now, 11.30 till 8 every day. Uh, that's not going to work come wintertime as the weather turns on us, but we're going to try and create some shelter out there for people to be able to... Uh, shelter and pick up an order and or we can take it out to him curbside uh we just have to it's in a, it's a new world so we'll just have to go down that road and see what it looks like when we get there so did you ever have uh, and i don't want to make this all about the pandemic and what happened but did you have a moment where you thought you just may have to shut down and call it call it a day i, I think everybody looks at that all those i mean that's just part of the decision making process and you say okay what are my alternatives pull the plug come up with a uh, some kind of transition plan or just be oblivious. And, uh, I mean, being oblivious wasn't an option and pulling the plug really was my last resort. So, uh, I, in all honesty, I couldn't be fair. I mean, I laid off 65 people in March, and I've got 45 of them back working. Um, and some of the other ones, uh, that's all I can because some of the other ones have decided that it's, it's time for them to hang it up, and some have moved home to different you know states and whatnot. So I've brought back everybody on my staff that wants to be there. Um, I feel good about the fact that I've at least gotten that far with it. Uh, where it goes in the future, I mean, I, I, I can't honestly feel good about the decision that I would just pull the plug and those 45 people say good luck. You know, that's, mm -hmm. I'll do everything I can to fight for them. So, so Piggins is able to support 45 people now? Yeah. 45 employees? That's fantastic. That's yeah. So it's a big step. Um, is it a big risk? Of course it's a big risk. Um, but what, what's the alternative, you know, uh, I mean, when I don't know about probably most people, I've certainly in 40 years hadn't applied for unemployment. I've never in my life. And, uh, I was having to do the same thing everyone else was. And I didn't find that to be, you know, my preferred situation. So, well, it's not a long-term plan either. No, exactly. <laughs> it would be, if it were a long-term plan, a lot more people, what, it yeah. would be a different deal, but, uh, that's not going to be the situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, have you had, you're doing some, a few different, you have some time that you didn't have mm -hmm. before. So what sort of, how are you occupying your time now productively and maybe even not very productively? Those well, are important things. Yeah, I mean, the, in the, on the home scene, I, you know, I'm a very avid gardener, so I've been gardening my ears off. So 
I'm swimming in, in produce uh, more than I can actually consume. So some of, some of that actually ends up coming to the restaurant, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. But um, that's on the home life. Lots of cooking and lots of reading and lots of writing and lots of gardening, and uh, which in a, in a way is just a slowing down to a pace that's, that's that part's pretty positive, but it's not where I want to be in the long term. Uh, work-wise, my work day has changed a lot. I don't do quite as much uh, production as I did. Probably half my day is production, and the other half is administrative stuff, writing, uh, chasing around contractors, uh, trying to divine where we're going with this and what we have to do to make people feel safe and comfortable in that environment, uh, crunching the numbers, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, we've got some projects. We're going to have a, a very – Thanksgiving's a big deal for us. It's always been our biggest day of the year. Uh, that'll change, of course. So now we're working on a complete Higgins uh, take-home feast uh, that'll be available for two to three-day pickup before Thanksgiving, ready to go, reheated instructions and soup to nuts, the whole deal. Uh, if that works well, we'll do a similar thing at the holidays in mm-hmm. December. Um, working on some meat fabrication projects and working with Carmen Ranch on producing a line of sausages and that for uh, retail sales and things. So, uh, And my salami production with S&P Meat still is clicking along so will they have your name on the sausage will oh, yeah. have your name yeah. on yeah it's a joint joint project so oh fantastic yeah so we're uh, just working through all those things so a little bit off off site stuff and a lot of on site stuff but uh, of a different nature you know pretty soon I hope when we open indoors I'll start breaking down whole pigs again uh, just because there hasn't been a, a volume of demand that makes it make sense right now so I'm buying individual cuts rather than you know primals rather than whole carcasses but mm-hmm. we'll get back to that pretty soon so so let me ask you, we, we, since we revealed it last time, both of our age, we're exactly, we're both 62 now. Did yep. you have your birthday? Yep. So how long do you, your vision, how long do you want, because you work hard. It's physical labor and sure. certainly now it's mental task, tasking mm-hmm. that you haven't had for a few years, right? Yeah. You, had, you had it down and you had a routine. Now you, there's no routine. Yeah. How long do you want to do this? Uh, probably till it gets routine, I guess. <laughs> I don't know when that's going to be. Uh, I mean, my, my hope is that by early next summer, we're coming out of this mess. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? I mean, we don't know. The, I mean, I read everything I can like everyone. And uh, I've got the, the more you think you have a clearer idea, the less you do, it seems to be. So that's my sort of hope is that by start of the summer of next year, this is uh coming to a close and we're smarter about things like this. We don't let this, you know, thing get to the point where it has this current one because obviously this could happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that case, we've got Piggins open this beautiful outdoor concept and an indoor uh, concept that hopefully is, you know, we've spent a whole lot of time and money in January renovating the whole restaurant. Uh, so it's all dressed up and no place to go right now. But, mm. you know, we're, we're going to share that newly renovated space with everybody maybe get rid of the, uh, the the vinyl off the banquettes and stuff and be a real restaurant again. Uh, oh, so it's just, like, it's now, right now it's looking like uh, 70s New Jersey? <laughs> it will the vinyl be. When the, the vinyl boys are done, yeah. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, uh, that's the plan there. And then to gradually, you know, turn more and more responsibility over to my key people. And But I, I, I can't not teach. I can't not cook. So I'll, I'll do it as long as I'm able. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so no timeline. And so how are you... Uh, other than folks in the restaurant, how are you? Uh, what's the outlet for teaching? And what are you writing now? What what, what kind of things well, are you been writing? Well, it started being uh, essays on uh, just 
being proactive, being positive uh, in your lifestyle. And so I wrote a piece on uh, uh, starting seed saving and, and plant starting and, and sharing things, just kind of sharing my enthusiasm about growing good food, real food, and why that's important. And that, uh, so stuff like that. Uh, I haven't done too much on the cooking end of it. I wrote some p- political pieces, of course, because we were all immersed in some very, very tumultuous uh, times here. Not just the pandemic, but the, all the, the Black Lives Matter issues and, and social injustices. Um, and it just gave me time to do some of that and to, to kind of blow the dust off my, you know, I'm, I'm not skilled. I wasn't trained as a chef. I, I think we talked about that before. I've, I've never been to culinary school. But I've got but you could te- you could you could run one. Yeah, I could run one. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> if we had one, we lost right. that too. So, right. uh, but anyhow, the, just stuff of that nature. Uh, I've written some pieces uh, for a public radio station in South Carolina, and uh, just trying to say, look, folks, let's make the best of it, and uh, let's cook, and let's garden, and let's you know be together, and let's support the right causes. Let's support each other. So. That's that's the kind of stuff. So, uh, toying with the idea of maybe revisiting a book project, but uh, you know, I've been told that what I do with food is old hat, and no one needs to know about it. So, uh, until I find a publisher that sees more of my thinking, then um, that may not happen. It may or may not happen. They just so. need to come into your restaurant and eat your food, and then they'll be all in. Yeah, well, one, I find you know, every time I, I haven't been in a while, I think about a year ago mm-hmm. to Higgins. Um, but every time you go, it's you remember what a good experience it is and why you should go there more often. So, well, that's, we, that's our goal is to you know make everybody enjoy what I mean. We're blessed with the, what we have to work with, and you know the people that provide that food to us are just unbelievable. I mean, one of my farmers left a crate of corn on my front porch yesterday, and I was like, Sheldon, seriously. How much corn do you think you're going to eat? You know, it's like I love corn. I grew up in a corn town, so. Uh, but you know, but when you sink your teeth into that ear of corn and slather it up with some butter and some chili salt, you're like, whoa, maybe I can eat all that corn. I don't know. So uh, yeah, I, 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 we'd love sharing food. I mean, that's just what it comes down to. So speaking of that, into I don't know if I ever actually had this conversation with you, but the end of our last interview, you were talking about you're making pizza, mm-hmm. wonderful pizza Monday nights. And I had the impression that you were serving that here mm-hmm. at, or at the restaurant at Higgins. So I, that I hooked into your Instagram mm-hmm. or your Facebook, whichever it was, and my mouth was watering all the time. And so one Monday night, I came down to the restaurant, the bar, mm-hmm. and I said, I want Greg's pizza. He's having, a, I don't know, an artichoke. And they said, that's... What do you mean? And I said, well, he said he makes pizza on Mondays. That was at your house. <laughs> so I, uh, I was completely mistaken as to how that was. And I'm sorry I've never been able to try it. But have you thought about a pizza concept that you... Well, you know, I, I was... If, uh, I don't think... I don't know if we talked about this or not, but I, I built the first wood-burning oven in Portland in 87 and pumped literally hundreds of pizzas a day out of that thing, tens of thousands of pizzas a month. Um, and I love pizza. That's why I have an oven in my backyard. But um, I, I more relish the uh, the idea of walking up, picking the produce out of the garden, bringing it to the kitchen, firing the oven, and making the pizza. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is like right. that's the real real food that I I thrive on. And so to do it commercially, I don't know. Per chance, I mean, I wouldn't say no to that. But um, 
I want to, I want to get through this mess and, you know, move forward, which that's, I just thought as we were speaking, uh, I don't think I told you about this, but in late March, as we're wandering through this, you know, maze that we're in, I came up with the idea that this should be documented, this whole, this process. And so I have a good friend, uh, Brian Kimmel, who is optic nerve productions. He's an independent filmmaker, mostly documentary filmmakers. I don't think he does any fiction or uh, that kind of stuff, but he does work for NPR and, you know, uh, private companies and that to do documentaries for, uh, their promotional purposes and stuff. And I'd worked with him on a couple of film projects, food film projects. He's really into food stories. So I floated the idea that maybe we should create a documentary film about this whole process of, of basically the, the voyage of Higgins or the inception and, and, and how we were adapting to this, turmoil and and what was going to come out of it without knowing what the other end of it would be. So in early April, we started filming that and we've been continuing to work on it. We're still doing some more edits. We've got some stuff scheduled. We were trying to get Earl Blumenauer to do a, uh, an interview part of the process because he was, it's, it's political, it's economic, it's social, it's food, it's mm-hmm. all those things. So sometime in the fall, we'll go to, uh, I think in September, we'll probably finish the final edits and that. And then some chamber music buddies have all contributed in, uh, original pieces to the score. Folks that play at chamber music Northwest that live in the Northeast and Tennessee and other places. Um, so it's promising to be an interesting thing. And I thought, uh, I floated the idea to carry Tim Chuck because they're, that's their business is history. And that, you know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, I don't know, somebody's going to look back at this and say, uh, how did that happen? How did they, how did they get through that? And mm-hmm. so we don't know what the, we still don't know what the end of the, the capper at the end of this 40 minute film will be, but we're putting this piece together and, and Brian's work is impeccable and it's going to be, it promises to be a very interesting view to see. It's funny now to go back and look at it because it's stretched now over, you know, we're talking from April to the present. Right. And new things happened in June. And, and things kept <laughs> evolving as we were filming. Right. Uh, and Brian's of course chopping it and it, slicing it and figuring out how to make it cohesive, uh, which I'm sure it will be, but, uh, it's been an interesting process. It's been another way I've been spending some of the time is, uh, right from building the car to taking a crane and lowering that thing into the plaza to, to all the planning, all the staffing, all the menu building and ingredient work. So you look back and you think if someone had told you on, you know, New Year's Eve, 2019, it's going to be a pretty interesting year. You wouldn't have been able to envision. How could anyone? Yeah. And, and whoever really thought of a pandemic? I mean, yeah. that it was going to affect us in the way that it has. So your documentary, is does it go as far as talking to some of the farmers and how yeah. that's affected them as well? Yeah. And, and what do you have to report from your farmers? How are they doing? How are they well, surviving? Well, you know, it's... It, there's different levels of adaptability and resiliency in, in, in different, uh, you know, facets of our food system. And so initially when this all, the, the real shock of this set in in March, we started, you know, networking on the phone and doing some FaceTime or whatever with my different, you know, I've got, a, I've got some growers that I've been tied to the hip to since, you know, 30 years or whatever. You know, so we're close friends as well as business folks. Um, and so all across the board, they all, uh, some have the folks that had fall plantings that emphasize more kind of late summer, fall harvests, 
they were a little less concerned, but of course that's changed because this thing is dragged on. And uh, and the people that were a little more front loaded with early crops and things like that were really freaked out because they had crops that were ready to harvest and no place to take them. I mean, some of them took stuff to the food bank, some of them dumped massive amounts. Uh, just it doesn't keep them afloat, though. Yeah, it doesn't make it work. So then uh, everybody was looking at retooling in different ways. And uh, it seems the most common approach was some sort of uh, CSA food box type approach of shares, you know, a mixed box of food, but then how to distribute that safely. Uh, so and that uh, that food box thing and, and people I know in the meat biz were doing the same thing. Um, it, it took right off, you know, went straight up in sales kind of climbed rapidly, but then it kind of plateaued. And now from what I'm hearing, it's mostly kind of declined, but it's not nothing, but it wasn't what it was initially. Mm -hmm. So there's challenges, but kind of on a parallel path, some of us brave or crazier people have reopened to some extent. So they've got another little shot in the arm with that, but across the board, they've all, they're all down like same kind of thing, 50, 60% in, in revenue. They've had to cut staff, you know, to represent that, of course. So, um, the, uh, as in any situation, the people that are uh, a little more with it and a little more adaptable have uh, been creative enough to find ways through. Uh, I, don't, I don't know of anybody yet who's saying, like, this is the last year for us or whatever. I haven't heard that from any of the growers. I think they've, farmers markets are continuing to do very, very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was amazed by that, actually. I mean, you go up to the Saturday market and it's almost like, you know, they've had to adapt to how they're distributing. Well, it's somewhere to go. Yeah. I mean, people have pent up, I yeah. need to get out of the house and they're not flying anywhere. Yeah. Know? So all these people are here. Yeah. So it's, the coast is crazy. Yeah. No, no, no. And we've got a little Sunday market in my neighborhood in Hillsdale. And uh, that's same thing that hasn't missed a beat, really. I mean, the sales are strong. So I would say roughly, I think most of them probably are going to come through in the, you know, 60, 70% of revenue thing when it's all said and done because the people are I mean, I found that one of the more interesting aspects of uh, suddenly the shortages of, you know, it started with toilet paper, but then it was yeast and flour and stuff because everyone wanted to bake at home and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And I could only imagine what some of those things look like, but at least people were cooking, you know, and, and that's and they were supporting the farmers markets. And, you know, so that's very positive. I think that we're super fortunate here in that uh, we have a very strong local food system and a lot of places don't have that. And uh, so that local food system was less influenced by, you know, regional and, you know, larger scale issues within, you know, like the livestock industry or whatever, right. all that crap, industrial food. And I think there's much uh, there's much more respect and support for the small scale local agriculture here. And I think for that reason, we didn't experience quite. I've seen some stories from other people in other parts of the country about access to food was not good and the food they couldn't get the food they wanted, even if they could get it you know, access to it. So, um, it's a testament to the years that have been spent here with growers and farmers and chefs and people that are just working to, to, to make people understand how important their own region's food system is. So and we came through that pretty, you know, positively. And I think also one of the advantages to Portland, which I think helped help people through is that we have such a collaborative community, not only, vis-a-vis -vis restaurants, mm -hmm. restaurants to restaurants supporting each other, but yeah, producers and so forth. So people are made aware that, you know, Nikki USA has this sale on Saturdays, yeah. go buy direct from them, help them through. So I think that a lot of those things have helped. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, and 
people know how to communicate that too. So it's you know the the, the, that's, the connections are there. So. If, if we if it had happened twenty years ago, there wouldn't be all this. You know, you wouldn't see posts on social media. Sure. Um, here's what's going on with pagans, mm-hmm. and it, it really. Um, it, it gives you an opportunity to communicate more directly with the people who love what you do. Right? Sure. So it's, it's a more intimate situation. Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and talk about one of our favorite places to eat again, Ringside Steakhouse. That's right. 75 years. The Peterson family has owned it. I wonder if we're going on. No, it's 75. 75 plus, plus one, I think, maybe. Right. But the 75th year was a challenging one for Ringside as well as other restaurants. And, you know, they've been doing their kits, their steak sales uh, since uh, April or May. And now in the middle of August, they're opening their doors and they're taking reservations for indoor and outdoor dining. They've got a tent set up outside. So I am really happy that uh, tomorrow night, Friday, we're going to celebrate the op- the reopening of Ringside Steakhouse and the reopening of dining out. It's so nice to be able to do that again. Yeah, and and you pointed out making those reservations at ringsidesteakhouse.com or using the uh, Open Table app, but that's the only way you can do it. You used to be able to maybe show up and be able to get into the bar or possibly get a, a table if you were lucky, like on a weeknight, but now you need to do a reservation. They have to be. They have to f- figure out their seating plan. So, make a reservation. And then there's another thing that's exciting. We've been hearing a lot uh, about what's going on in Portland, and some of it hasn't been that good. But this is great news: an opening of a new place, which is a partnership between the Peterson family of Ringside and also our friend Micah Camden of Blue Star Donuts fame, fame and Little Big Burger fame, and of course, one of my favorites, uh, Super Deluxe. He's opening in the former Boxer Ramen space on East Burnside, I think it's 26th, um, is uh, Rock Paper Fish. This, is, this speaks to me, New England style fish and chips with a Northwest uh, personality too. So uh, Micah, when he does something, um, you know it's going to be good, and for the Peterson family to be involved, they're not putting their name on just anything. So this would be something really cool to check out. That, unlike Ringside, now is takeout only for a while until things we get out of this COVID situation. That's right. So don't forget, make those reservations for both indoor and outdoor for Ringside Steakhouse at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And check out Rock Paper Fish as well. That should be fun for you. So we'd be remiss if we didn't address uh, Black Lives Matter. Sure. You know, your restaurant is pretty close to the action. Sure. Like a few blocks, right? Mm -hmm. Is that... So, uh, and, but you're not open, so it's not something you are dealing with right now, but just some of your thoughts on what, what could be done, what, what how, it, done? how it will have impacted downtown Portland. Well, um, I mean, anybody who's spending any time down here, uh, you can just see, I mean, since when can you find a parking spot on any block at any time? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that, that just right there tells you that. Uh, when this first came down before the whole protest uh, situation blew up, uh, I was down here every day, you know, from the day after I laid off my staff and closed the restaurant. 
to just, I still had st- st- products in, in process that I had to deal with meats and brine and stuff like that. And then an old building and there's certain things I have to do with the plumbing and stuff. So I was down there tinkering in that and seeing what downtown was like. And it went, uh, it was an absolute ghost town in March and April. Uh, I mean, very little presence of anyone. There's some residents in the area, but that's sparse. Um, and then we moved forward and the, the, you know, the few ticks of a pulse started coming up in May and stuff like that, but nothing was really going on. We started planning for opening for curbside takeout in early June. Uh, when the protests started, uh, the first period was, you know, really intense, uh, when there was the looting and the vandalism and stuff around, uh, third and fourth. Um, and I would come down to check what's going on and just monitor, you know, the, 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 the cultural aspect of it or the social aspect of it. And, and clearly and enough is enough. I mean, that, how many times can you say that? It's, I'm not talking about I, protesting by all means, the, the wanton violence and vandalism and stuff is that part is, is just, I can't get my brain around it. I'm, I'm just like, we're tearing our city apart here. What are we, what, when are we going to sit down to the table and actually make progress? And I still feel that way that, um, you know, the situation with the mayor and, and uh, them, you know, vandalizing the building that he lives in kind of blows my mind. I'm like, what part do we stop beating on each other and, and really sit down? And I mean, there's there's a lot of pent up frustration. And, and uh, I don't think it would have happened had the pandemic, you know, fueled that fire. And then the kettle boiled over and that's what we got going now. I mean, it's not stopping. And uh, I mean, around the country, another shooting in LA and mm-hmm. Kenosha and, uh, you know, if I were to cite one thing, I'd say it's a lack of leadership and uh, I'm not pointing fingers here in Oregon. I agreed with everything Kate Brown has done or everything that the mayor's doing or right? some of it, I don't even know what he's doing, so I can't comment on it. Mm-hmm. But I do know that uh, the divisive political culture that we've, put ourselves into uh, vis-a-vis our, our, our leader in Washington in the White House. It's kind of tears me up. I grew up in a political family. My mother was very active, a single parent, and was very active as the first Democratic chairwoman of a, a county in, in New York State in those days, back in the 60s. And uh, so I was brought up with a strong civic responsibility about participating and supporting those causes that I felt strongly about and voting Every year, regardless. I mean, the day of my 18th birthday, I was at City Hall in Buffalo getting registered to vote. Um, and I still vote, you know, every every chance I get. Um, and I just want us to get past that and get on with uh, get on with making some concessions and agreements and, uh, you know, serving people. So do you think it's possible? I do. Or I do think we have to sit and wait till November to see if that happens. That's the scary part. I, for right now, uh, just because we can't really control uh, control that, uh, that's outside of our control. But what is in our control, essentially, with our elected officials here in the city and in the state, uh, would be to stop messing around, figure out a way to diffuse uh, the the tension, and get down to the table and, and hammer out some agreements. I mean demanding the resignation of the mayor and the police chief. I mean, that's not a solution. Uh, The solution is actually deciding what within the expertise of people that really know their business is the amount of police cuts we can handle and where does that money go to and how does that get put to good use in, in righting some of these wrongs in the community. But individually, it's about each one of us treating each other in, in an appropriate way. And it's, it's boiled over to the point where you can see it on a daily, I mean, I'm a bicycle commuter and 
I can't tell you. I mean, people are ignoring red lights. They're ignoring stop signs. There's just this growing, you know, restless anger. Well, there's a lot of tension when yeah. people's incomes are at stake. Sure. And, uh, and they have time to think about it and not do anything. So I've, I've noticed there's, um, and not pointing to any one specific thing, but yes, the whole idea is to have peace mm-hmm. and have accomplished better lives for everyone. Sure. And sure, you, things need to be shaken up a little bit, but I think there's some people that have lost sight of, geez, I'm making things worse for these folks yeah. by trying to make things better. So, yeah, some of the, I mean, some of this stuff is just playing into the hands of the, the Trump supporters, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, if, if you feel he's a good guy and he serves your, 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 serves your needs, I can, I can understand that. I could, I'm not, I don't condone it, but that's the way it is. But, I mean, the restaurant business has always been one about just basic respect and survival. And and so in the trenches of cooking in the kitchen or the stress of a dirty dish room or a whatever, I've never been in a kitchen that I can recall that color made any difference whatsoever about anything, you know. And uh, I'm sure there are those places, but I've never been in one. And I've been running kitchens for almost 40 years now. And it's always been about character and, and skill and motivation and, and, and attitude. And it's nothing about it. Gender, color of your skin, size, you know, any of that. Yeah, know? but we've had time to think with all this going on. And you and I are white guys. Mm-hmm. And I've all of a sudden realized, you know, when I get pulled over, and I'm a faster East Coast driver, mm-hmm. so I've had my share of lights in my rearview mirror. All I'm thinking is... Damn, uh, I got a ticket. Yeah, how much is this going to cost me? Yeah. And what's the impact on my insurance? It wasn't until this year that I, that I realized, boy, every time that happens, for me, that's nothing. Yeah. So, uh, and so I mentioned that because in the kitchen, you may not have seen it or been aware of it, but someone from another perspective may have, mm-hmm. you know, there could have been people in your kitchens over the years who have slightly different perspectives. And that's what this is, I think, sure. from our, from my standpoint at least, helped to understand is that, uh, you know, there are other perspectives that perhaps we haven't considered. No, that, that, that part's a given, but. They, the, there's just not being able to get past it. I mean, I mean, we're the same age. We grew up, we saw what happened during the civil rights movement in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as this thing mushroomed to where we're at, it, it, it's absolutely clear that we haven't made progress and you can argue maybe we made progress on this or that, but it's, it's not. And, and when, when are we going to make progress? And, but, uh, you know, tearing down, institutions, I don't think is the answer. I think, you know, getting to the table and, and hammering out real measurable programs that they can be put into place. That's progress. And, uh, do you think that's possible here in Portland, uh, from what we've seen with the players that we have? Well, I, that's a hard thing to, I mean, I can't judge. I don't know what goes on in the, in the meetings you know, with Mayor Wheeler and his staff and, and people from different departments that are they're, they're dealing with this thing head on. Uh, I'm not, I, I read the news as much as anybody, but I still can't have a clear picture of what that is. Yeah, I don't either. And uh, I would like to know. I would like to know really what we're doing. I say, do we have to wait till they actually burn down a building uh, till we get serious about this? I mean, loss, more loss of life, is that what it's going to take? I don't know. I can't answer that. Uh, but I'd rather see us, you know, 
be smart about it and and just say this we can go that far we can't go that far you know and and and, and come to agreement so it's difficult now one of the things i realize is it's difficult to hope that the masses can do the smart thing mm-hmm. because there's just too many factions to be able to get everybody on board down the right path well so, I mean, the history will you know that we've seen will bear out that you can't make everybody happy. I mm-hmm. mean, but what we're, we're talking about is, you know, I think basic respect, you know, and basic rights, uh, those things we should be able to do. I mean, uh, if no one's ever going to be happy with how much the cuts are made or not made, right. that's given, that's the political process. So, so, um, we spoke a little earlier about one of the things that you like to focus on is positivity mm-hmm. and not necessarily the negatives of all that mm-hmm. have gone on because there have been some negatives. What do you, uh, what are you latching onto? What do you foresee, not only in the restaurant business, but just for life in general in the United States? Um, well, I like, <laughs> my first one would be a change in November, but you know, yeah. uh, you know, I just, I've, uh, well, it, then let's just focus on restaurants because okay. that's a broad question. Yeah, that's, that's a broad so question. So what do you see, you know, what, well, what would those of us who either uh, work in restaurants or, or simply enjoy them and want to mm-hmm. see a scene like similar to what we had before? Well, I mean, we're obviously headed for the biggest reset in, uh, in the food community that nobody's ever seen anything like it. I mean, short of the great depression, I don't know that there's ever been anything quite so drastic in the way of small businesses in this country. Um, I'm optimistic that, uh, just with whatever strength and fortitude and creativity I've got, we'll make our business get through till next spring. Um, but I know there's a lot that aren't going to do that. And so we're going to be seeing consistent closures, uh, through the winter months and, you know, who knows when that tails off. Um, but when we do, the people will have come through that will be stronger, of course. Um, but nobody knows who they are going to be. I mean, we all are just moving forward with just, you know, stubborn optimism. And uh, at that point, we'll see things start to, to rebuild. And um, that's always a good opportunity because out of the ashes, good things come, you know. There's space available now. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. But what? How's that? The whole real estate market has been thrown. It will be an upheaval because yeah, we don't know about offices. We don't know about retail. We don't know about restaurants. Uh, those are big variables. And uh, I've read some, you know, pieces from all over, from Wall Street to Journal to you name it. You know, Axios, and everybody's got an opinion about what the future of restaurants is. Um, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, obviously we're social animals and gathering and, uh, and sharing and celebrating our, in our DNA. So I don't see that going away, but what does that restaurant look like? Uh, I mean, I can probably cheat the devil on 50% revenue for a year maybe, but I can't go much further than that. Uh, so what is it going to mean for the diner? Is there going to be consistently less seating in restaurants? Is that going to be a thing in the future that you're not going to be packed into small restaurants? I mean, there couldn't have been a uh, more perfect storm for this restaurant community because of the amount of small independent restaurants we have and how tiny some of those are and how they have. I mean, I went from 140 seats down to about 50, but I know a lot of restaurants that went from 30 down to eight 
or something like that. You know, you can't run a restaurant on eight seats. I mean, it's, it's a virtual impossibility economically. Um, so that's why we're seeing everybody scrambling, trying to come up with some sort of interim bridge plan to get to where they want to be. Um, again, I'm optimistic if we can bridge through to springtime, then I'll have a pretty good situation with a really marvelous outdoor plaza space and an indoor space that however many seats I can seat in it, I don't know. So, Do you... Are you fairly optimistic you'll you'll have 160 in there again at some point? Um, I can't say that. I'm, I'm, and and then the question would be, with the advent of outdoor space and indoor space, just what is our capacity? You know, because I've got to be able to process that amount of food to mm-hmm. feed that amount of diners. Uh, so adding the extra 60 seats outside. You know, my kitchen, uh, you know, the, the thumbnail is you're supposed to have nine square feet of support space to six square feet of uh, dining space. And I have the reverse. And if I add another 60 seats on top of that, then I'm in a proportion of like three square feet of production to 12 square feet of dining. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an albatross. And uh, so I have to, I know as a, as a chef and, and, and uh, with a good mind towards logistics and, and production, there's a tipping point. So probably not 160 seats, probably, you know, maybe it's seasonal. We add a few seats in the wintertime when the outdoors closes or something like that, you know, but those are nice problems to worry about. I mean, uh, right now it's, it's trying to fill the seats that we have mm-hmm. and hope we can continue to do that. So uh, that's my, my real focus at this point is figuring out how to make that indoor space the most uh, safe and, and comfortable possible for people. So I think as uh, time goes on, people are just, there's pent up. Mm-hmm. demand to get out of the house and, and enjoy that experience again. So I'm, I'm hopeful, crossing my fingers, mm-hmm. that not only will people want to be able to go out and enjoy themselves in Portland, but elsewhere sure. as well. We all want to travel. Yeah, so yeah. not be able to travel stuff. <laughs> right, and we need people to travel here yeah. too. So, you know, we have quite a few, you know, as, as well as anybody, mm-hmm. restaurant hotels. Uh, yeah. They've been struggling. Yeah, no, the, uh, I mean, our, our, our trade has always been tremendously entertainment based and that's gone till, you know, next summer, basically live entertainment because of all the theaters we're surrounded by. Um, and then a huge amount of tourism and business travelers and those are gone. So, you know, right there, there's potentially 60 or 70% of my normal revenue stream doesn't exist anymore. And the same for anybody else in the downtown core. Uh, neighborhood restaurants have a little different dynamic demographic they're working with, but um, often those places are much smaller, and so the restricted seating is you know makes it. It's no none of us have an easy way through this. I mean that's for sure, and uh, it's 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 painful to hear. You know, as soon as I hear of another closure, then I just think about how many uh, jobs that is, and how many people. You know, I, I mean we've had to advertise. Uh, list for several front and back house positions because we basically ran out of people to bring back. And uh, back six months ago or eight months, let's say eight months ago, back in the fall of the winter, if I advertised on poached, I'd get maybe a dozen responses over a day or two period. Now I put a post up and I can't keep up with all the responses. I mean, it's hundreds of, of responses, resumes coming right back in a matter of a day or two. Uh, so that really tells you like what kind of duress this is on the people that are passionate about our, our industry and that are without employment. Um, 
Hopefully. And it shows you also they'd rather work and get paid than not work and get yeah, paid. Yeah, I think the sitting at home and, you know, playing Nintendo goes so far. So, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I want to see those numbers go back to where they were. But, uh, you know, it, we, I think I, I just counted in my head recently uh, with the, 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 the prominent closures that happened. That's probably a thousand people right there out of work, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Easily. And it's an interesting conundrum because the last time we met, we were talking about front of the house versus back of the house and and, uh, minimum wage and what that was going to do to the restaurant industry. And now all of a sudden, in a climate where it was tough to fill positions, that... Is, that's not necessarily going to be an issue for a little while going forward. Yeah, it's so. a it's a whole different thing, and uh, so I don't know. It's a new world, and if you if you sit and just uh, you know be depressed about it, you're 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 not going to move forward. And moving forward is really what's most important. So at this point in time, you got to just dig in and and you know push forward. And I mean, my staff doesn't want to see me moping around, and you know that's not going to get the job done. So. Doesn't sound like you would want to mope around anyway. No, I, 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 you're not a moper. I got a little too much going on. It's too many ideas. I got to get you know, my hard drive's getting jammed up. So right. Well, so and also you have your garden, yeah. which is so. Is that is that what has enabled you to charge your batteries and and see this perhaps a little more positively and, and not mope? There, there's nothing more. You know. I mean, just the other day, I was planting fall crops, seeding, you know, trays of, of crops for the fall. And I got a grow room in the basement. And I got a greenhouse and I got the, the garden and all the fruit trees and stuff. And so uh, it's just this Zen sort of therapeutic ritual to prepare the seed mix, the seed, you know, the, the base mix for the seed trays and moisten it all down and then select the crops that you want to get going. And then, you know, just just sit there and make little holes and put one or two seeds in each one of those holes and moisten them down and get them under a dome and you know and then you know three four days from now i'll just up every day i'll be down like a kid at christmas you know looking for that first little green sprout and uh yeah it's a cleansing you know reinvigorating you know process and when you can see that happen on a regular basis and it, you know that's part of your cycle that's part of your existence uh then this stuff is bothersome but seeds are going to still sprout and fruit's going to still mature and, you know, peppers are still going to be awesome when they mature out to their full peak. And, you know, that's, there's, there's, there's refuge in that, you know, it's really important to ground yourself. So. Well, it's good that you can still get a thrill from that too. Not only a thrill, but peace. Yeah. uh, Thanks. I appreciate you taking yourself away from, all this and the garden to uh, well, this is easy. sit down and yeah. chat. Much rather this and talk to the HVAC guy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Um, yeah, I'll remember. That. I'll remember that as something positive I can hold on to. That I'm not the HVAC guy. That someone doesn't <laughs> want to talk to. So, so that's positive. And one day I want to. I'm, I'm not inviting myself, but I'd love to enjoy one of your pizzas. So, and not go in and make a fool out of myself in your bar. It <laughs> was kind of a. I don't really call it a setup, but that's. <laughs> no, I don't think you realized it. I, I I didn't realize it, but I just assumed that they were uh, being served. But. Uh, no. Anyway, it was humorous. And I have to say, your staff was, they were uh, great because 
they kind of laughed with me. I mean, I'm able to laugh at myself. I made a complete fool of myself asking for your pizza. But they served me a burger on the house, which I thought they didn't need to. I said, no, 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 this was my mistake. But that's that's the good service. And well, that's, that's the kind of, it's good people, yeah. Exactly. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And it's a beautiful day out. So Another one. Let's get out and do that. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. 